Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, the weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called All the Ends of the Earth and is based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, August the 17th, 2008. Monday was a happy day in my house. Our son returned from six weeks of teaching conversational English at the University of Zenitsa in Bosnia. In the wee hours of the morning that same day, my daughter returned from the central highlands of Honduras. She had traveled with her high school group to help build a small church. Their richly rewarding experiences made them the beneficiaries of and the witnesses to the global character of God's kingdom. There are 193 member nations of the United Nations, and this summer, beginning in August, about 200 national teams will compete in the Beijing Olympics. But the Christian church just might be the most truly globalized institution that the world has ever known. At its best, it ought to be. 4,000 years ago, God made an improbable promise to an obscure nomad named Abraham. He promised Abraham that in him all the families of the earth will be blessed. Genesis 12.3 God repeated this promise to Abraham's son, Isaac, and to his grandson, Jacob. Through Abraham, God formed a special people, Israel. But through electing that one nation, God always intended to bless every nation. Fast forward 2,000 years from the time of Abraham to the time of Jesus. The Apostle Peter proclaimed that Jesus fulfilled the Genesis 12:3 promise to Abraham. After his resurrection, Jesus told his followers to spread his message to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. In his parallel passage, Mark renders the meaning more emphatic by writing to all creation. Similarly, in Luke's sequel to his gospel, Jesus told his timid followers, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, into the ends of all the earth. Acts 1.8 Now fast forward another 2,000 years to today. The promise to Abraham and the fulfillment in Jesus have become an empirical reality. Luke's Acts of the Apostles begins in Jerusalem, proceeds geographically outward, and in his final chapter ends with Paul imprisoned in the imperial city of Rome. Under Roman house arrest, Paul's last recorded prayer before martyrdom was for, quote-unquote, all the nations, Romans 16.26. But that was only a modest beginning. Starting with a few uneducated, bedraggled disciples, Today, about a third of the world identifies itself as Christian, nearly twice as many as those who follow Islam or Hinduism. To take another tiny data point, Christians from at least 223 countries 
have accessed the Journey with Jesus webzine. <clears throat> the scriptures for this week emphasize how the global character of God's kingdom is a prominent theme throughout the whole Bible. The purview of Psalm 67, for example, is global rather than parochial. Originating from an ancient writer of a geopolitically marginal people, I'm always amazed at the cosmic scale of this Hebrew poetry. The psalmist prays for God's blessings to fall on all nations. His God is not a territorial God, but the ruler of all nations and all peoples. And so he calls all the ends of the earth to offer praise and thanks. His poetry pushes us beyond all ethnocentric boundaries to embrace every other, and beyond every egocentric preoccupation to worship only God. The prophecy of Isaiah 56 does likewise. No foreigner outside of Israel, writes Isaiah, should ever fear, quote, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people, end quote. Foreigners who offer their love and worship to God, says Isaiah, will discover that God's temple is a house of prayer for all nations, Isaiah 56, verse 7. And in the gospel for this week, the Apostle Paul tells us not to distinguish between Jews and Gentiles, for God intends to bless all peoples everywhere. Romans 11.32. And finally, such is the teaching of Jesus in this week's gospel, where a Canaanite woman who knew that in the eyes of the Jews she was a despised dog, nevertheless earned praise as a woman of great faith. Matthew 15.28. Two radical corollaries follow from the global character of God's kingdom the decentralization of your geography in the reorientation of your politics. Christians are geographic, cultural, national, and ethnic egalitarians. For Christian, there is no geographic center of the world, but only a constellation of points equidistant from the heart of God. Proclaiming that God lavishly loves all the world, each person, in every place, the gospel doesn't privilege any one country as exceptional. A Bosnia Muslim is no further away from God's love than an American Christian. A Honduran Pentecostal is no closer to God's love than an Oxford atheist. Much has been written lately about American exceptionalism in our global dominance. In terms of economic, political, military, scientific, and cultural influence, America is unrivaled. In, this, in that sense, it's accurate to say that America is exceptional. But from a theological or Christian point of view, America is no or more less exceptional in God's eyes than Iceland, India, or Iraq. And so, while allowing for a natural and wholesome love, even pride in your own country, 
In the long run, Christian egalitarianism subverts every form of geopolitical nationalism. Our ultimate citizenship, says Paul, is a spiritual one. Philippians 3.20 Christian global vision also asks me to care as much about every country and its people as I do about my own. Christians grieve the deaths of 90,000 Iraqi civilians as much as the 4,000 American soldiers killed in Iraq or the 560 soldiers killed in Afghanistan. Christians lament the tragedy of Cyclone Nargis that killed 140,000 people in Burma or the earthquake in the Sichuan province of China that killed 70,000 people every bit as much as they do the tragedy of Hurricane Katrina. Christian globalism implies that your politics become reoriented, non-aligned, and unpredictable by normal canons. In the Gospels, Jesus never pro proposed any political program. There's no such thing as a Christian politics and efforts by both Democrats and Republicans to co-opt Jesus badly distort his message. Rather, Jesus calls us to something far more radical and demanding. He asks us to do what God himself does, as expressed in the two of the most famous verses in all the Bible. He calls us to love the whole world, John 3.16 and to love your neighbor as yourself. Mark 12, 31. For further meditation, ask yourself, is the core of my personal identity formed more by nationalistic cultural values or by the kingdom of God proclaimed by Jesus? For books this week, I review a book called Encountering the Mystery, Understanding Orthodox Christianity Today, New York, Doubleday, 2008. The author is Bartholomew I, his all-holiness ecumenical patriarch. For many Christians in the West, both Protestant and Catholic, Eastern Orthodox Christianity remains largely unknown, overlooked, and even ignored. Orthodox believers constitute a family of 15 self-governing, or what they call autocephalous churches, that are united in liturgy and doctrine, but otherwise are administratively independent. By some estimates, Orthodox Christians number 300 million adherents. Whereas Rome fell in the late 5th century, Byzantine Christianity flourished for a millennium, from the time when Constantine established New Rome in what is today Istanbul until its fall to the Ottoman Empire in 1453. In the United States, since the late 1980s, a steady trickle of mainly Protestant evangelicals have even converted to Orthodox Christianity. It's hard to imagine a better guide to the Orthodox than Bartholomew I, born in 1940. 
1991, he was elected as the Archbishop of Constantinople and the ecumenical patriarch who serves as the spiritual leader over the entire Orthodox communion. In Orthodox parlance, he has no juridical authority, but he enjoys a primacy of honor as the first among equals. His personal background and sustained efforts over the last 20 years have earned him a reputation as an outspoken advocate of reconciliation among world religions, ecumenicity among Christians, and care for the environment. Bartholomew is a Turkish citizen of Greek heritage, situated at the geographic, cultural, political, and religious crossroads of Islam, Judaism, and Christianity, and he's also fluent in eight languages. Bartholomew begins his book with a general introduction to Orthodox history, theology, and worship. He explains the aesthetic elements of orthodoxy as seen in its architecture, icons, and liturgy. He describes the influential role of monastic spirituality in the sacraments. I've always appreciated the orthodox emphasis on so-called apophatic theology, the idea that the transcendent God is beyond human definition and comprehension, and yet truly imminent at the same time. Bartholomew writes, God as unknowable and yet as profoundly known. God as invisible and yet as personally accessible. God as distant and yet as intensely present. The infinite God thus becomes truly intimate in relating to the world. In the last half of the book, Bartholomew turns to matters of ecology, human rights, social justice, war and peace, and dialogue. Throughout the book, he shares personal anecdotes about his childhood, seminary days, visiting the famous monastery at Athos, and his numerous ecumenical and environmental undertakings. This is a good book by a great man, but for an introduction to orthodoxy, there's still none better than the book called The Orthodox Church, by Bishop Callistus Ware of Oxford, first published in 1963 and now available in any number of revised editions. Bartholomew I, Encountering the Mystery, Understanding Orthodox Christianity Today. For film this week, I review What Would Jesus Buy, 2007. Join Reverend Billy and his Church of Stop Shopping Gospel Choir as they exercise the spiritual powers of compulsive consumption. In real life, Bill Talen left San Francisco where he was a talented actor and found his true calling when he landed in New York City's Times Square. There he began his warnings about what he calls the shapocalypse that peddles endless credit but lands us in eternal debt. Reverend Billy dons a white tux and a faux clerical collar for his street theater, preaching in Starbucks, for example 
or prophesying against billion-dollar corporate profits built on the backs of Bangladeshi children who sew our designer clothes for seven cents an hour. Most of this documentary follows Reverend Billy in his choir as they tour America in two, in two junker buses the month before Christmas 2005. You might easily imagine the sacred shrines they visit on this anti-pilgrimage, including the Mall of America in Minnesota, the headquarters of Walmart in Arkansas, the Las Vegas Strip, and on Christmas Day itself, the ultimate virtual reality. Disneyland, home of the Antichrist, Mickey Mouse. The film interviews shopaholics and cultural critics alike, including Jim Wallace, Bill McKibben, and Andrew Young. The film is produced by Morgan Spurlock, famous for Supersize Me. This creative social satire would be great for family viewing. What would Jesus buy? <clears throat> and finally for this week, we've posted a poem by the Nobel laureate and Polish-American citizen, Szczesław Milos, who lived from 1911 to 2004. The title of his poem is called A Nation. the purest of nations on earth when it's judged by a flash of lightning, but thoughtless and sly in everyday toil, pitiless to its widows and orphans, pitiless to its old people, stealing a crust of bread from a child's hand, ready to offer their lives to draw heaven's wrath on their foes, smiting their enemy with the screams of orphans and women, entrusting power to men with the eyes of traitors in gold, elevating men with the conscience of brothel keepers. The best of its sons remain unknown. They appear once only to die on the barricades. Bitter tears of that people cut a song off in the middle, and when the song dies away, noisy voices tell jokes. A shadow stands in a corner, pointing to his heart. Outside, a dog howls to the invisible planet. Great nation, invincible nation, ironic nation. They know how to distinguish truth and yet to keep silent. They camp on marketplaces, conversing in wisecracks. They deal in old door handles stolen from ruins. A nation in crumpled caps, carrying all they own. They go west and south, searching for a place to live. It has no cities, no monuments, no painting or sculpture, only the word passed from mouth to mouth and prophecy of poets. A man of that nation, standing by his son's cradle, repeats words of hope, always till now, in vain.
A Nation by the Nobel laureate Sheslov Milos, 1911-2004. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, August the 17th, 2008. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.